115. You can read along, open your Bibles. I'll give you just a second here. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. I'm just going to underline that verse and read it again. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. So, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens. But the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down in silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth. And forevermore. Praise the Lord. And as those called to be like God and to be aware of the fact that what we worship is what we become like, let us hear this word from Paul to Timothy. Have nothing to do with irreverent silliness. Rather, train or discipline yourself for godliness, for godlikeness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Father, we thank you for your grace that has saved us from the penalty of sin, that is saving us from the power of sin, and one day will save us fully and finally from the very presence of sin. And God, we ask you now by your Spirit to help us be aware of the battle we're in, to live with you and to become like you, not just because we think it's right, but because we love you. We ask that you would shape our hearts to love you more and to love others who love you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to try to show a little short video clip here that intentionally, I hope, feels a little boring to you. Just a couple minutes here. It's already running a little ahead. So this is 82 years. That one, Chris. 82 years of just slow and steady pressure, repetition, presence of this water. Now certainly, as I looked into this a little bit, there were years when there were hurricanes. There were major weather events that happened. 
But for the most part, it was just the steady beating of the waves against the coast. Water is powerful. It seems very ordinary, and were you to live in this place in Connecticut, you would certainly have noticed it after the decades, but you may in many days have have failed to see any change happening. Anything that was different. It would have seemed like boring Mondays, boring Wednesdays. But the water continued to flow. The pressure continued to be applied, even when the human eye may not could have observed it. It was ordinary, but it was powerfully shaping. What we may fail to see, what all of us may fail to see, is that it may be the most ordinary habits in our life that have the most powerful effect on who we are and what we love. And yet most of us live unconscious of what those habits are. Most of us in here think that it's the things that we think that are most important to us really are what is most important to us. But it's those things we may not even be aware of that continue to come in our lives to shape us that really matter. So let's think about this for just a second as we get started this morning. Where do you see the power of ordinary habits at work in your life or in others' lives or in the world? Things are powerful. They're powerfully shaping, and every one of us in here has these routines, these habits, these repetitions that may seem small, but they are more powerful than we might imagine. The gospel of Jesus and his kingdom has come to free us from this sort of unconscious, eroding repetition in our life. To free us from that. To make us aware of that. To show us what it is that we need to actually change. Because what we all in here have to realize this morning, what Paul is saying to Timothy, and what I believe God is saying to this psalmist, is that we must discipline our habits because they will direct our hearts. They will. There's not a choice for us. We don't get to sort of opt out and say, I'm the exception. I can live an unintentional, undisciplined life, and things will just be okay. No, you may not see it today. You may not see it tomorrow. But when the time-lapse video of your life is shown after 80 years, there are going to be streams, there are going to be rivers that are flowing, regardless of whether you intended them to or not, in the regular paths that you walked in your life that formed ruts that have been filled in. So we must discipline our habits because they will direct our hearts. And what we're talking about this morning and these next weeks is that we have to see ourselves changed, not merely at the level of what we do, not merely at the level of our actions, but at the level of our loves. The level of our loves. So how do we do this? We've got to first become aware of the power of our habit. So 1 Timothy 4, 7, train yourself for godliness or discipline yourself for godliness. Now what is the assumption here in this statement? Train yourself or discipline yourself for godliness. What's the assumption being made? That we're not godly? That's one. What's another one? You can 
So we talk all about grace. Everything we do in our church is about grace. But what we have to often say is that grace is opposed to earning, but grace is not opposed to effort. You can discipline yourself or train yourself to become more godly, to become more godlike. This is possible, and that is just overwhelming, isn't it? What a privilege of grace that we can readjust, reorder our lives as in such a way to become more like Jesus. That that is actually possible. That is amazing. It's amazing. As we look back to, to Psalm 115 and verse 8, we see something that's going on here, this powerful dynamic of how our habits work. Notice, to the idolater who may be unaware of the power of their idolatry, the word, these words are said, those who make them become like them. What we see here is that our habits, our hands, reveal what we worship. Here's what I love. Whatever you put your hands to in the repetitions of your life, reveal what your heart really loves. Regardless of what you say, whether conscious or unconscious, your habits say, this is my vision of the good life. So whatever your vision is of the good life, that is your God. And that's where your time is spent. But we also see in this that our habits not only reveal what we worship, but they reorder it. So this idolater who's fashioned these idols, who's put time into them, who's invested his heart and soul, not just his mind, but his actually work, his hands, his habits, they begin to shape who this person is, what they love, what they want, and who they actually are. It's not just a matter of head knowledge. It's a matter of repetition that shapes what not only what you believe, but what you want, what you love, what you like. So do all who trust in them. It's that this is at the level of the heart. The Bible teaches that our hearts are our causal core, that out of our hearts, Jesus says, flow our words. The, the book of Proverbs said, out of our hearts flow springs of life. And there's something powerful being said in 1 Timothy 4 and something powerful being said in Psalm 115 that our habits have a massive influence on our hearts. A massive influence on our hearts. That although our hearts are from which all our actions and behaviors flows, our hearts are not stagnant, set things, but shaping, influenced, directed, by what we repeatedly do in our lives. The psalmist exposes in this psalm that these issues are a matter of worship, that the comparison is no real comparison. Right? Our God is the God who is in the heavens, who does what He pleases, who actually does speak, who actually does act, who actually does work. There is no comparison. So we're called to trust Him 
And yet, although there is no comparison, there is a very real competition going on. There is a real competition in all of our lives today, in all of our hearts, and that competition, what we have to do, the hard work of realizing, is not going to be happening just on the field of your Bible study, but in the habits of how you live your everyday life, what you give repeated time to, because habits are powerful. Many of us know the story of the life of George Mueller. It seems that many of these these answered prayers that he experienced were legendary, but they've been documented by so many people and even himself and confirmed. It's just amazing to see what God did in his life. One such story is he oversaw this massive orphanage, and he refused to to proactively pursue uh, financial support. This is just one of his core values, and I don't know why he had it other than he just wanted to see God work. He wasn't going to directly ask anybody for money. He was just going to pray that God would provide. And God continued to provide and provide in his life. And on one such morning, they had no bread for all of these orphans to eat. And so he, as he did every day, went to the Lord in prayer and asked that God would provide. And as a bread truck, a bread delivery service was going by, the truck broke down right in front of the orphanage. And the man that was driving the truck walked up and said, Do you know anyone who could use this bread? Because if I don't give it now, it's going to go bad. Now we think of those extraordinary stories, and they're amazing, and we want them. All of us in here who have the Spirit of God want to see God do extraordinary, miraculous things. But what we don't realize is that if you look into the life of George Mueller, that wasn't like a a trial thing that he did. Like one day, hey, let's go see if God will do a miracle. No, but as we read the story of his life, every morning he got up and he said, I am determined and resolved to spend time alone with God's Word and in prayer until I get myself, this is the words he used, happy in the Lord. So he created this space in his life. I'm not just going to step out into the world until I have received this satisfying encounter with the God of Psalm 115. The God to whom all glory belongs. We just want the bread truck to break down. When Jesus has said, I'm the bread of life and you can feed and feast on me anytime you want. And when you walk in me in the ordinary, that's when you open up your life. That's where you create these ruts, as it were, that when the the waves beat every day, they begin to come into and fill up. And then God, by His grace at times, does send the hurricane of the Spirit to do beyond what we could ask or think. But it's our habits that are powerful. They shape us. It's like my niece that that resembles many children. I heard the other day they were saying how when she was little, she loved to, had a, was a great eater, which means she would eat all kinds of food. Until when? Can anybody guess? What ruined her great desire for all kinds of types of foods that were healthy? What was it? Sugar was part of it, but I'm going to go to the word chicken nugget. <laughs> right? The nugget. The great defeater of all parents' hopes and dreams for a healthy household. Because once you start getting in a habit of eating those nuggets, broccoli, 
green beans, peas, vegetables, all of a sudden you retrain your taste buds to this addictive substance. And you don't do it through thinking. You don't sit down and say, hey, I want to like that instead of this. None of us in here can think our way into eating more healthy. We just got to start doing it. We've got to reshape our taste buds. And we've got to believe, like 1 Timothy 4, 7 says, it can actually happen. And it's good. It's godliness. We've got to do the hard work that says, maybe I don't love what I think I love. If you say, oh, I love healthy eating, and all you eat is nuggets, that's a theor theoretical love. It's like me planning my spiritual disciplines for the new year while Netflix is on in the background. And I'm barely paying attention. So I have this great plan, right? I'm going to read through the Bible, read all these Puritan paperbacks or whatever. But i got to keep this, too. Maybe I don't love what I think I love. Our deepest desires are not revealed in our heads, our theology, our doctrinal statements. Our deepest desires and our deepest loves are revealed in the habits of our lives. They shape us. They reveal us. And this is why our great heroes of the past, like Jonathan Edwards, came up with these, these long lists of resolutions, spiritual disciplines that they would shape their lives by. They didn't just sit down and write theology books. They didn't just go out and see the masses come to know who God was out of the blue as if we're just going to decide to go do this. No, this was the overflow of a life lived alone in the secret, cultivating a personal relationship with God through His Word and prayer. Men like Charles Spurgeon who said, I'd rather teach one man to pray than ten men to preach. Men like B.B. Warfield who said to, to students of the Bible, it's not enough just to study and read your Bible. Why don't you do that on your knees? Habits are powerful. So we must reshape our practices, committed to these practices. And so we're just going to go back to the beginning here of Psalm 115 to verse 1. And we're going to see this psalm is calling us into a different way of life. What does it mean to live a life that's aimed towards godliness? Well, it's a life that is God-centered. And not God-centered as in a topic or an idea to dissect, but God is a person. God is the Lord of Israel, Yahweh who unlike the gods of the nations was a personal God, who had revealed Himself, who wanted a relationship, who hadn't just created the world as like a clock to be wound up and now step away from and let it just unwind, but a God who was over history, a God who was in history, down to the level of the dropping of a dice and down to the number of the hairs on our head. And so He said, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. 
This is a this is a psalmist who is experiencing a personal relationship with God, who's speaking to God as someone who is. Verse is just a thought. Verses 2 and 3, why should we say the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. A life ordered around the supremacy of God and His sovereignty. Verse is just a theory. Verses 12 through 16, we won't read all of this, but it's a, a life that's ordered around trusting in God's provision. He will bless us. If we give our lives to Him, if we reshape our, our routines and our habits, He will satisfy us. He will provide for us. We can let go of all of these other gods that we think are going to give us our heart's desire. And we can realize what Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee. The psalmist is saying, He's enough. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the people of God. You can trust Him. You can trust Him. And you see, it's a life ordered around the now, the active, the repetitious. In verses 17 and 18. Verse 18, We will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is a life of worship that... It's not about something merely that will happen in eternity future, but it's to happen in eternity present, in the now. And for the people of Israel, this book of Psalms was their hymn book. As they gathered together, and as they scattered as God's people, these would be the words that they memorized, the words that they repeated in their homes, and by the wayside, and as they gathered. That would shape how they viewed the world, how they ordered their lives. It was a practice that was powerful. I'll never forget early in my ministry going and visiting a man who had Alzheimer's that was a part of our church. And his wife was there. She came every day to his care facility and she was feeding him. She was making sure he was dressed. He, he had no idea where he was. He had no ability to have any type of conversation. But he, you, he might have could have fooled you. Because she made sure he looked good. She made sure that he was taken care of. That he continued to be well groomed. She loved him. And then I saw this, these pictures on the wall. And it became so evident to me even in that moment that this was not something that this lady was just conjuring up. Like, this will be nice to do. Like, this is what a wife's supposed to do. But this beautiful display, more beautiful than any wedding I've ever been to, more beautiful than any honeymoon that you can imagine, this picture of the love of Jesus displayed in this woman's life wasn't coming out of the blue but it was revealed over here on this wall of pictures of how they had lived their life together in the stuff of everyday life again and again and again. These weren't the first meals they were eating together. No, they'd ate a lot of meals together. This wasn't the first time probably she had told him, you need to put these clothes on. 
This wasn't the first time she spent time with him. No, she was able to spend time with him in such a difficult situation because this was the, the, the holy, spirit-filled ruts that she had walked out in her life and in her heart that now made this the overflow of a life of love. Something so much deeper there than any romantic movie or event that could convey. But it came through many hard days of just being faithful to each other. Of just showing up. Some love comes first, and I'm sure they loved each other early on in their relationship. But a deeper love, a more committed love, of a heart that's shaped and overflows with the love of God comes through practice, through time, through repetition, through just showing up again and again. Not only when you feel like it, but many times especially when you don't feel like it. It's learning to play the scales before you can really enjoy an instrument. It's learning a sport, doing the fundamentals, going to the camps that you hate before you really learn to enjoy the game. It's the way of Jesus who says, don't just teach them to know everything I commanded you, but teach them to observe, to obey all that I've commanded you, knowing I am with you. You see, if you were to Google, you are what you think, and I challenge you to do this today, you know what's going to come up? Buddha, not Jesus. I did this the other day. Jesus doesn't say you are what you think. Jesus says you are what you love. You are what you want. You are what you desire. We're not going to be changed into disciples who submit all of our life to the Lordship of Christ just by thinking better. We're going to be changed by a life that follows Jesus habitually, repetitively, that loves Him with our minds, but also with our heart, soul, and strength. That doesn't just go to learn theories that has time in our life to go and know Him. Not about Him only, but Him. But this is hard. It's a fight. While we call our little groups where we really encourage each other and hold each other accountable to do this, fight clubs. It's not to be trendy, it's not to be silly, it's not to be goofy or weird. It's because it's a fight. Old habits die hard. Spirit of God, for those who have truly been regenerated by Him, has created in us those holy sort of divots, like we saw in that time, those holy ruts. And now we're called by the power of the Spirit and through the, the energy and, and, and blessing of grace to fill up those holy rails and ruts with a life of communion with God. It takes cultivation. It takes direction. 
That's why these next few weeks we're going to talk about some of these personal disciplines. Like what does it mean to actually read God's Word regularly, repetitiously, habitually in our lives for the sake of a communing with God that shapes our everyday lives. We're going to talk about reading the Word. We're going to talk about prayer. More than a checklist. But prayer that enters the presence of God through the work of Christ. We're going to talk about the disciplines that affect our body. Like fasting. Again, like Jonathan Edwards who would regularly take these walks and horse rides to engage his whole self and senses in the glory of God's creation. Things like solitude, silence, and disciplines like what it means to be a witness that shows and shares Christ. And to not do these things just sort of randomly, but to ingrain them in the very habits routines, and really even rituals of our lives, like brushing our teeth, taking a shower, watching that show you're committed to watch once a week or every night, or making sure your Facebook, you scroll to the end of each. All of us in here have a daily order of worship. So that's the first steps. We've got to own that. It may be Facebook check, breakfast, toothbrush, listen to this on the radio on the way to work, sleep, hobbies, TV. So I want to challenge you this week. Humble yourself and say, here are the things I do repeatedly. There's so much grace for you to do that. You don't have to be afraid. Some of you like me, like me, I don't want to do that. I don't want to know. God already knows. He's already made you his child. And then think, what, what might it look like for me to, to maybe lay aside some of those things, maybe not all together, but at least in part, to add some new habits. Realizing that these really are shaping my heart. I may not feel it right now, and they may not even be bad. Powerful. We have to start. As I thought about this, I wrote out these words just for myself. The practice itself of the habit shapes the heart. And this is why the actual practice may be the hardest part because it actually gets at our wants. For me to make such a space for such habits, discipline, and rituals will require a sacrifice of other gods or starving them out, or killing them, or displacing them, and they will not go down without a fight. You might not realize how much you love something until you try to give it up. You might think, well, I don't need Facebook, you know, for that hour a day. I could quit any time. I could quit watching that show on Netflix. Well, you may find very well you're going to be like that addict, you know, who says, I'm not addicted, I could quit any time I want. And then you say, well, why don't you quit? I don't want to. <laughs> we are those people. I can quit anytime I want. Okay, do it. Try it for a month. Feel the pain. But trust the grace. We would be wrong to leave without saying this. But we feel the power of our habits. We're going to practice these habits. The last thing here, just briefly, is there will be a plot 
of the enemy, the world, and our flesh as we seek to pursue the reordering of our habits for the shaping of our heart is that we can turn these spiritual disciplines, these habits, into gods themselves. Some of us in here are particularly prone to legalism will begin to think, God loves me more on the days that I have my habits shaped better. Some of us in here may already be feeling condemnation. Right? Well, I guess I'm just not as a spiritual a person or as much of God's child as someone else because I'm not so disciplined. And as you, as you seek to do this, as you seek to find out what you really love and replace it with a better God, you may be tempted to think, wow, I'm horrible. Why am I not good like all these other people? Others of us may lean into not legalism, but mysticism. Thinking, oh, I'm so in touch with these ancient practices and not like this consumeristic, materialistic Christian culture all around, but then really just make it about you having some type of experience instead of actually knowing God. Still others of us could be led down the path of individualism. I don't need the church. I don't need God's people. It's me and God alone in the corner. All these things are going to come at us. It's going to be a fight that we're going to have to remember. We don't want to have to be like the guy, imagine, who's drowning and somebody throws a rope to him and he says, wow, what an awesome rope. And he just as he drowns, says, that is the most beautiful rope I've ever seen. I love this rope. Man, where did you buy this rope? I wish I could study this rope and learn all about this rope. And then he dies, right? The rope's not the point. The rescue's the point. The rescuer's the point. We don't want to be people who make spiritual disciplines or these habits the point. They're not the point. They're merely a means to an end to knowing our God, Father, Son, and Spirit more deeply, communing with Him, becoming like Him, becoming godly. And the only way we will do that is we come to them through the finished work of Jesus, realizing only He lived the perfect life of spiritual discipline. And we're going to see He did. He retreated to be alone with the Father all the time. He communed with the Father through word, through spirit, through prayer. And as we realize that He has went to the cross in our place, because we do have all these other loves that our habits reveal. He has seen it, and He has paid the penalty that we deserve through making gods out of our phones, our TVs, our food, our time, our schedules, our dreams. It's covered. This is really good news. You don't got to go out and make up for it. You don't have to read your Bible to pay off the debt you owe. You don't have to spend time with God because, well, he's kind of like my dad who bought me that Christmas present. Now I feel obligated to hang out with him a little bit. No, he loves you and he has sent his son to make you his child. But he's risen from the dead and he's given you a spirit now and he's called you to live this life that lives like him. But it will be a life of ordinary faith. Ordinary faith. Leslie, be like the man in the flood who climbed on his house and a raft comes by. 
He's praying, God, deliver me. Do a great work. Y'all all heard this cliche. Story. He says, no, I'm not getting on the raft. I prayed and asked God to deliver me. And so then a boat comes by. And they say, hey, buddy, you want to get on the boat? He's like, nope. I've asked God to do a miracle in my life. Will you deliver me? And a helicopter comes by. Last chance. The water's up to the top. It's like, nope, no thanks. I'm trusting God for a miracle. I prayed and asked him to deliver me, and he told me he would, and he dies in the flood. And he gets to heaven, and he says, God, why didn't you answer my prayer? He's like, I sent a raft, I sent a boat, and I sent a helicopter. That's where we all are, isn't it, a lot of our life? He's giving you His Word. He's giving you His Spirit. He's giving you Himself. If you want to know God in an extraordinary way, then shape your ordinary life around habits that will direct your heart. Father, we thank You that You are in the business of training us for godliness. And that godliness is good for us. And we just confess that our old habits do die hard. We confess that our taste buds are often, have often been shaped and shifted to the things of the world in ways that are the exact opposite of maybe what we think and believe. And we pray that you would unite our head, heart, and hands as we reorder our lives around your ways means of grace you've given us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.